Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. I would like to start this show by first welcoming you back to this week's show and thanking you for all your support in my first three months of producing the show. I hope I've been able to give you a peek at our multiverse as seen through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. I do have a bit of exciting news in the lab relating to my experiments in transdimensional communication. Over the last week, I had a rather successful communication from the other side that I was able to clearly record occurring two times over a 12-hour period. This appears to be a communications attempt from the other side rather than a typical EVP because of the fact that it repeated the attempt with a slightly different message but with the same voice. This is huge when trying to produce scientific validation for any phenomenon because part of the scientific process is the ability to repeat an experiment and gather similar results. I wanted to share this with you in tonight's show, but I've decided to wait until next week, which will give me a little more time to expand the experiment and try to establish a two-way communications contact. I know this is a bit teasing, but if I am able to gather more samples or actually make two-way contact, it will greatly amplify the significance of this, this experiment. Be sure to tune in to next week's show and tell anyone interested in the paranormal communication to do the same because I guarantee you will not be disappointed in what I'm about to play for you. In this show, I am going to share a very special presentation given recently by physicist, author, and one of the original pioneers of the Monroe Institute, Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell was a keynote speaker at the 22nd professional seminar held at the Monroe Institute last March. The theme of the two-day seminar was Consciousness, the Endless Frontier, Physics, Metaphysics, and the Nature of Consciousness. I am part of the professional division of the Monroe Institute, which consists of a wide variety of scientists, doctors, and researchers combining their professional skills with the technology of Hemisync developed by the Institute with the common goal of awaking humanity through the exploration of consciousness, as well as contributing to the understanding of the human potential both physically and mentally. I hope to be one of the speakers in the next professional seminar as I present the results of my own personal research with Hemisync applied to various Toltec shamanic techniques that are indigenous to my particular lineage. The focus of my research is to enhance the Hemisync experience in all participants through the stimulation of the assemblage point of awareness through very obscure shamanic techniques adapted to the hemisync signals. The results are very promising and I feel it will greatly complement all the programs offered at the Institute. With that, I now present you with Thomas Campbell speaking at the 22nd Professional Seminar.
pleasure to be here today, having been part of the creation that was to become the Monroe Institute. I take particular pleasure in seeing how far it has come, how much it has grown, and how many lives it has enriched along the way. The theme of the 22nd Professional Seminar is Consciousness, the Endless Frontier. As one of the original explorers who has never stopped exploring, I am particularly pleased to have been asked to kick off this 22nd Professional Seminar. We're here because of our association with TMI and because of our interest in creative and useful applications of Hemisync. So I will give you a short description of the genesis of both Hemisync and TMI. Secondly, in consonance with the theme, Consciousness, the Endless Frontier, I will explain very quickly the core of what I've come to understand about the nature of consciousness and reality. Okay. Um, please hold your questions until the end. There's never enough time for questions, and I'm likely to take uh, the lion's share of the two hours allotted to me. But I'm going to be here all day today, tomorrow, the next day, as long as most of you will be here. And I'm very open to, to uh, have meetings. Um, whether it's early in the morning or late at night is fine with me, as long as uh, it's fine with Shirley and it doesn't interrupt with any of the things that are already scheduled for the seminar. So I think we'll have to hold most of the questions until uh, uh, later today or the next, next several days. This is going to be a very quick uh, skim over the top. Actually, it's more like a hop, skip, and a jump uh, across the, um, the very top of this. Actually, this was a very hard presentation to generate, not because I had a hard time figuring out what to say, but because I had a very hard time figuring out what not to say and still say within the two-hour time limit. That was the challenge. Now, these slides are going to be busy. They're probably going to have more words on them than you can read. I'm going to go through them very quickly. I'm going to be speaking very quickly so that I can, uh, won't have Shirley mad at me going over uh, my time. I understand a big hook comes out from somewhere around here if you go past your time. So uh, I'm, I'm motivated to, to get done. So it is going to be quick. Uh, all of these slides are going to be available on my website. You see that, www.mybigtoe.com. Um, so you don't have to copy a lot of things down. You can find the slides. I haven't put up there yet, but I will just as soon as I get a chance to get on the Internet. Also, uh, the slides are on the computer here, so I'm sure TMI will pass them out to you if you have a thumb drive or some way to, to pick them up. Um, so if, if the slides uh, become, a, become a problem for you, trying to read them and listen, stop reading and just listen. Okay? I will say everything that you need to hear. You just let the slides go. They become annoying for you. Okay, first, a little introduction. Now and always a scientist sums it up pretty well. Uh, in college, I, I uh, majored in both physics and mathematics, went on to grad school, uh, finally did uh, thesis work in experimental nuclear, and now I work for NASA. I do risk analysis, which basically means physics models, uh, system behavior, complex system behavior. So the team that I work on, and it's a fairly large team, what we do is, is try to discover what could possibly go wrong what the probability is of it going wrong, and then if it does go wrong, how do you fix it? Okay, well, how did a, how did a, a physicist like me end up, uh, you know, uh, exploring consciousness and being uh, part of the Explorer program early on? Well, once I left graduate school, my, uh, I took a job, and my first boss 
Bill Yost introduced me to Bob Monroe's first book. Well, at that time, this is 1972, early in 72. At that time, it was his only book. And the boss comes out and he hands me the book and he says, Tom, I want you to read this and tell me what you think. So I did. I read it. And uh, a few weeks later, you know, I, uh, he asked me, yeah, well, what about this book? And I said, well, there's three possibilities. One, this guy has a good imagination and is just trying to sell books. Two, this guy's nuts. <laughs> three, this guy's sane, honest, and accurate. And there's a whole lot of reality out there that I would love to experience and understand. But how do you know? You know, unless you meet him and can get a measure of the man, how do you know? You know, is this guy nuts or what? Well, my boss and I both kind of shrugged shoulders and agreed that, you know, it was just really impossible to know from reading the book. But uh, evidently, Bill was, was listening. And uh, about three months later, he came by and said, hey, Tom, we've located Bob Monroe. He doesn't live that far away. There's a bunch of us going to go out and, and visit him. Would you like to come? And I said, absolutely, I want to come. I want to know whether it's one, two, or three. You know? I want to meet this guy. Well, that was, um, like I say, you know, that was more like the uh, spring of 72. And um, toward the end of that meeting, we did meet with Bob, and we spent the whole evening with him. He was very gracious, as usual. And I found out, of course, that it wasn't one or it wasn't two, that Bob was very real. He was very genuine. He didn't have anything to sell. He just wanted to understand what was going on, and he wanted to put it into scientific terms so that he could share it with other people. That was his ambition. And we found out why it is he invited all of us and, and put up with us for a whole evening. Uh, toward the end of the night, we were on the, the back deck of what was called the lab. There wasn't a whole lot in it at that point yet, but uh, you know, with Bob, it was one of those things like, uh, you know, build it and they will come. He, he had built it, and he wasn't quite sure, I don't think, what he was going to do with it at that point. But he looked at all of us, and he uh, kind of scanned us over, and he said, well, you guys are all scientists and engineers, right? And we all kind of looked at each other like, what's coming next? And we <laughs> nodded our heads, yeah. And he says, well, would any of you like to join me here and work in this lab and help instrument it and put it together and study consciousness? Well, it took me about a millisecond for my hand to go in the air. And I said, absolutely, I'd love to do that, Bob. But um, I'll do it if you teach me what you know. And he kind of considered that for about another half a second after that. Another hand went up in the air, and it was Dennis Menerick. Um, now, now, you have to understand, Dennis and I were both in our 20s. You know, we were middle to late 20s at this time. And Dennis said, I'd like to do it too, but, you know, I want you to teach me what you know. So uh, Bob kind of looked around at the rest of the group. I think he really was hoping somebody with a little more stature and experience and <laughs> reputation, you know, would take him up on it instead of two kids. Uh, you know, not that far out of graduate school, but uh, nobody else uh, said anything at all, so it was a deal. And about three weeks later, Dennis and I are coming out to Whistlefield Farm. We're meeting with Bob, and from then on, we'd meet with Bob like Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. We'd get there after dinner, about uh, 7, 7.30. We'd go to the lab, and we'd start building equipment. There really wasn't a whole lot there. There wasn't any measurement devices for the people. There was just audio into three booths. So we would build equipment and start uh, figuring out what we were going to do next, you know, experiments and things that we could, we could do at the lab. After about an hour or so, Bob would come up, and then Dennis and I would get in the booths. There were three booths, and uh, Bob would, would uh, begin to carry out his part of the bargain, which is to teach us what it is we knew. There really wasn't a program then. I don't even know that Focus 10 existed then. It, it may have, but uh, 
certainly uh, nothing beyond that. So, you know, Bob was just making it up as he went, and we were just making it up as we went, all trying to come up with something that would make science out of this. That was our, that was our goal. Well, we did this for, for years. You know, Dennis and I were coming out here probably for, for pretty much straight five years or so. We were coming out three days a weekend. We'd come out on weekends. So you can imagine that um, you know, we were averaging somewhere between 20 and 30 hours a week uh, you know, with the lab and with Bob. So you know, 20 hours a week with Bob Monroe as your personal trainer, you, know, you couldn't help but learn something and learn something pretty quickly. So it, was, it wasn't that long before Dennis and I had pretty well um, uh, mastered the altered states. Uh, we were going out of body. We were making uh, non-physical friends and, and people that we could get information from. We were doing experiments. Everything had to be experimental. There wasn't any point in doing anything you couldn't check to see whether it was real or not. So that was the kind of the ground rule. It wasn't just fun and games and have a neat experience. It was, is this real? And it took a while before. It probably took a year and a half or so before I got to the point that I could answer that question with a yes. Um, and that's, everyone has to come to that point somewhere where you decide, you know, is this real or am I making this up? But um, in any case, um, Dennis and I were in the cut and try mode. And uh, we, would, we were doing anything that we could. We ourselves had become very sensitive instruments to altered states of consciousness. Bob drilled us going, you know, down to that pulsation state, out of body and back up and back down and, and so on. We did that thousands of times, so we'd be very sensitive to the altered states and the pathway in between them. That was uh, the first part of our training. So Dennis and I were very sensitive to our consciousness and, all, and what state it was in at that time. So we'd do things, well, we crawled in, um, in pyramids you know, aluminum pyramids because a book was out that said, you know, inside a pyramid oriented with the, you know, you could get different, um, you know, uh, <coughs> altered states. Everything that was ever published, you know, we tried to read on the subject. So we'd go into pyramids and see what it did to us because we were very sensitive. I stuck my head between two big capacitor plates with a couple hundred thousand volts on them to <laughs> see whether or not we could oscillate the pineal gland because we had read back in the Muldoon and Carrington days that they thought it had to do with the pineal gland and we thought well and we knew it had to do with four hertz because Bob and we did too when we got in that pulsation state uh, you'd get this around four hertz vibration going on so we knew that was physical because once we outfitted the lab with GSR we could actually see that little GSR meter sit there and oscillate at four hertz so it wasn't just a perception of consciousness there was something physiological going on that was oscillating at four hertz so those were our only keys um, so we were cutting and trying everything. Uh, Dennis uh, went to visit some faith healers from the Dominican Republic and you know, see what he did. And each time we were using our body as the instrument and our mind as the instrument of how did it affect our consciousness, looking for tools. Okay, well, that, uh, that went on for uh, a year or so, and we were unsuccessful in finding appropriate tools. And one day while uh, I was at work, and Dennis and I worked at the same place, uh, Dennis came by, he gave me some papers and said, take a look at this, you know, maybe we can use it out at the lab. So I looked at it, and it was an article by Oster about binaural beats. And in that article, it mentioned that it was thought that binaural beats might entrain EEG, might entrain brain waves. So that sounded pretty interesting. So we thought, yeah, well, let's give it a try. I mean, we were trying everything. And uh, unfortunately, the, the very... Uh, a few days after that, Dennis uh, had to uh, leave the country with his, his job, took him out of the country for about a month. And when he came back, um, he went to the uh, uh, double E lab. He was a double E, 
and uh, went to the double E lab at University of Virginia, borrowed some equipment, made a binaural beat tape. It was a very uh, nicely done tape. He started out at Alpha and went down, or started out yeah, at Alpha, stepped down, you know, small steps at a time, down to the theta region at the four hertz, stayed there for an hour or two and stepped back up. And um, we vowed we'd go out to the lab our first opportunity. Well, it was good timing, actually. Bob was out of town. He was out of town for two weeks, so that gave us lots of time to play in, in the lab and, uh, because we would rather be in the, in, the, in the bed being instructed by Bob than we would be actually doing research on our own. So this gave us time to play around, and uh, we went out. We put that uh, binaural beat tape on, and we listened to it, and there it just stepped us down. We followed it. We, we didn't try to do anything with it. Just listen. And we could tell from our consciousness, it would just drop us, and we could tell when that would go down one hertz, it would drop. We could feel every step of the way. It was like walking down a pair of steps. Then it put us in that uh, theta state, held us there without any effort on our part, and stepped us right back up again. And we both got out of that, those, those beds and looked at each other and said, wow, that really worked for me. Did it work for you? You know, and we agreed that it did. And we were uh, very excited about that. And for the next week and a half, while Bob was gone, what we did was try to optimize it. We tried different base frequencies. We tried different waveforms. Besides the sine wave, we put in triangular waves and square waves and all kinds of other things. Uh, we tried uh, different uh, volumes and intensities. And so by the time Bob came back, we had what we thought was a pretty good, uh, a pretty good sound, and it was very effective. We told Bob about it, and actually Bob, I think, was even more excited than we were. Um, because he had the bigger picture. I mean, we were just young guys in a lab, and he kind of saw where maybe this, this would go. So the next step was to determine whether or not it was just us. You know, we weren't exactly normal anymore. We'd been doing this with Bob for a, for a year and a half, and we were very sensitive in our consciousness. You know, we knew how to get down and get in that theta state and get out of body and that sort of thing very routinely. So we weren't just the average person, but we had to know, would it affect the average person, or was it just us, because of all the training we had had? So the next thing was to get people in there who were naive subjects, if you will. And Dennis and I brought our, our wives, and we brought our children, and uh, we brought our friends and neighbors and anyone we could, and we didn't tell them anything. We just said, listen to this, and then describe what happens, you know, what, what happens with your mind. Just listen to it. And um, Bob was doing the same thing. Everybody that passed through Whistlefield, and in those days, People were constantly passing through Whistlefield. Bob was like a hub of interest in the larger reality. And he would snatch all of them, get them up to the lab, and have them, you know, listen to this and see what, see what you think. Well, after a couple of months of trying this on naive subjects, we found that it affected everyone. Now, everyone didn't go out of body. It depends a whole lot on what you bring to it. Some people, as soon as you'd get down to that theta level, they would just lose consciousness, just snap, they were gone. And as soon as they stepped back out of it, snap, they were awake again. And they'd say, oh, I fell asleep. Well, they didn't really fall asleep. They weren't tired. You know, they, this, they just lost consciousness. But it did affect everybody. So uh, we knew we had something to pursue. And what we needed then was a real experiment. Some people that we could run through the paces, naive subjects again. So Bob called up some of his friends and passed the word around that he had a technology that was uh, effective in, uh, in helping one go out of body. And he got overwhelmed with, with uh, responses. He booked the Tuckahoe Motel, which is a little motel over on Route 250. At that time, it, was, it had already seen its heyday and was a little bit dilapidated, run down, a little motel. I think it had maybe 20 20 units, just one rectangular building with 10 doors on either side. And um, 
He booked the whole motel, and we had then about two or three weeks to get ready for 20 people that we were going to be our lab rats, and we were going to run them through a program. Now, Bob wanted to know what could this do? Where did this, this putting them in this state, what did it allow them to do? So he, his job was to produce the program, and he produced a program that had them, um, oh, you know, looking in envelopes, reading numbers, seeing pictures, remote viewing. We had targets laid out. Uh, they were healing. They were, they were, you know, visiting relatives. They were uh, doing just anything you could imagine, you know, that, that uh, he could think of. We just wanted to know what happened, you know. With, with, these are people that probably had been doing some of this stuff anyway, but what difference would it make now that they were listening to the sound? So we had the seminar, and uh, uh, by that time, Nancy Lee had joined us, and uh, Nancy Lee had come in probably about the last month or so of that. She just graduated from college, and uh, she was the organizer. She organized this whole thing, got people's travel arrangements, picked them up at the airport, got all the logistics, you know, the refreshments, everything. So she was the organizer. Bob was busy doing the program, and Dennis and Bill Yost and I were in Bill Yost's garage trying to build equipment so we could put sound for two people in 20 rooms and GSR on all of them so we could keep track of what it is was going on uh, with their bodies. And that was a rush. As the people started arriving, Dennis and I were still in the closets of the motel rooms, you know, soldering wires. <laughs> Nancy Lee was in, a, was in a, 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 a Twitter because, you know, everything, of course, at the last minute happens all at the same time, and she was organizing it all. And Bob was probably the only one that, uh, you know, was uh, serene, but he was putting the, the, edge, the, the final touches on his program. Well, the people came, they, they got in their, their beds, they put on their headphones, and for a, a, two days, for the weekend, it was, the, it was the most paranormal things that I had ever seen happen, you know, at, at one time. There were, one of the things you had them do was shining their, their energy beams, light up in the sky, and we'd go outside and see if we could see the lights in the sky, you know. And <laughs> there were lights in the sky, and there were more paranormal experiences. There were, you know, these people got out of body, they made contacts, they, they, they read things in the envelopes, they saw the pictures, and uh, we had some very good hits that way. So it was just a phenomenal weekend. And about that time, I think Bob started to think, hmm, you know, I think we've got something, and there's enough interest that perhaps we can develop this and it'll even pay for itself. Up to that time, Bob paid for everything. You know, he built the lab, you know, he, he paid for the equipment, he paid for the, for the uh, components that we put together, so it was all out of his pocket up to that point. And uh, I think he was looking for a way to expand that so more people could get involved. So then we held a few more of these seminars at the Tuckahoe, since we had that building wired, and uh, <clears throat> we decided to make use of it. And there were three or four more held there. And uh, matter of fact, um, the next speaker, uh, the first speaker this afternoon, uh, Joseph Pierce, he came to one of those additional seminars. So you'll have somebody here that uh, was there at the Tuckahoe. I remember uh, Joe because the way it worked is that Bob would come right in the, in the morning and he'd say hello to everybody and give them a little pep talk. Then he would leave it, and uh, Dennis and Nancy Lee and I would run the program, and Bob would show back up at the end, you know, just when everybody was done, and uh, say, well, how'd everybody do, and talk, and, you know, have a little, have a little uh, thing at the end. So I remember Joe uh, very well. I think Joe was a little disappointed that he had to deal with a couple of 20-something-year-olds, you know, and not Bob Monroe for the whole weekend, but... In any case, that's the way 
That's the way it was run. Well, we found out pretty soon that 20 rooms wasn't enough. And then I put Dennis and, and Bill Yost and I back in the garage building now a portable audio harness that could play to 30, I think, maybe 40 people. We are started renting large conference rooms in hotels, taking all the furniture out. The hotel people wondered, what were we doing? The table went out, the chairs went out, everything, and we would have, uh, it'd be a room like this room, and we'd have aisles, and then we'd have bodies laid out all over the floor. You know, and every two or three feet, there'd be another body laying out on the floor, and they all had to come with their own mats, and, uh, or if they didn't have a mat, they just laid on the floor. And we put this wiring harness down the middle of the aisles and peeled off the earphones and so on to everybody. And again, you know, it was Dennis and Nancy Lee and Tom that, that ran the seminars, and Bob would come in at the beginning and he'd come in at the end. So we did this and ran a whole bunch of those. Um, at that time, the demand kept growing. Pretty soon, it was, um, we needed a, um, a way to do this off-site, not just here in the Charlottesville area, but off-site. Now, this, this new land hadn't happened yet. We, we weren't here where we are today. We were still at Whistlefield Farm, was the, uh, was the headquarters of all of this. And uh, so we started to go on the road. We'd pack up that, that, uh, that harness, and uh, Nancy Lee and I would go off to California and do a seminar, and Nancy Lee and Dennis would go off to the Northeast and do a seminar. And so it went until Dennis and I, with full-time jobs and full-time families, you know, and now being trainers besides on the road was just more than we could stand. So at that point, Dennis and I started to, to kind of back out and, and look for replacements. <coughs> and Bob took a little chance to kind of stop and rest and see what he was going to do next with it because it was obvious he had something that was going to work. So shortly after then that Bob purchased this new land, a place where he could build a facility, and uh, other people came in. Dennis and I kind of slipped out the back. Now, I was still on the board and still interfaced a little bit here, but then that was kind of the end of, of my, uh, my tenure with it. But uh, so that was the, that was the uh, invention, if you will, of Hemisync and of TMI. Those things came later. Uh, Bob patented that uh, binaural beat sound as, as Hemisync, and that was his name that he chose for it. And uh, eventually... Um, of course, the, the, uh, the organization got changed a couple of times and, until finally it ended up uh, as, as TMI over here on the, on the new land. Okay, so that's it for the history lesson. That's where uh, Hemisync and TMI came from. Yeah. Now, let's do a little uh, physics and a little metaphysics, and I'll try to give you a, a quick uh, rundown about what uh, the nature of reality looks like. Okay, and I'm very likely... To break some of your favorite paradigms, um, well, we're one ahead, but that's all right. I'll get there. Very, very likely to break some of your paradigms. I'm very likely to run over a few of your most cherished cultural, personal, scientific beliefs. Uh, but instead of believing or disbelieving what I say, just consider the possibilities and assess the probability based on your own experience. Use open-minded skepticism until you find out. You must develop your own personal big picture from your own personal experience. Until it's your personal experience, it cannot be your truth. Okay, so always remain both open-minded and skeptical. If you are not open-minded, you'll never learn anything new. If you're not skeptical, you'll never know whether what you're experiencing is real or made up. 
Okay, so you must be both. Okay, now we're going to look at some big picture uh, models. Big picture model has to describe everything, objective and subjective, physics and metaphysics, the normal and the paranormal. Today I'm going to explain big picture science, and I will show you that the big picture science derives little picture science as well as metaphysics. Okay, to be valuable, big picture science must provide a superset, must provide better, more complete physics, and better, more complete metaphysics. First, historical perspective. Albert Einstein, last 25 years of his career, he worked on a thing called unified field theory. This was going to be a toe. Toe means theory of everything. And what that means was that one understanding, one set of principles in which he could derive all of science, just from one principles. And really what he was interested in, he wanted one set of principles that could derive both quantum mechanics and relativity. Those were the two big new things in science, and they didn't look like they went together. They were kind of separate things off doing their own thing, and he knew there must have been something more general understanding from which you could derive both, and that's what he wanted. And that actually boiled down to just finding out two things. One, why was the velocity of light a constant? Because that's the key to developing relativity. Once you understand that light's constant, relativity just falls out with a little algebra. Okay? And the second was, why should particles really not be particles, but be probability distributions? Because once you understand that, then quantum mechanics falls out very naturally with a little algebra. So those were his issues. Now I'm going to do some quotes to let you know where Albert Einstein ended up. After 25 years of studying the larger reality from his view, what were his conclusions? Okay. Space does not have an independent existence. It's a quote from Albert Einstein. Reality is merely an illusion. Okay. Hence it's clear that in the space of physics, that the space of physics is not, in the last analysis, anything given in nature or independent of human thought. It's a function of our conceptual scheme. Space, which is our reality, is a function of mind. Now, this is Albert Einstein. This isn't some new age guy, you know, with the long hair on the street corner. Well, he had long hair, but still wasn't a new age guy. This was Albert Einstein, probably one of the most competent and far-reaching scientists who uh, knew how to think out of the box. And these were his conclusions. Okay. Now, David Bohm, another physicist, um, uh, very highly respected, worked with Albert Einstein. So, you know, he had to be highly respected to work with the, the best of the best. The thing he said was, our notions of consciousness must have room in them to understand what it means for its content to be reality as a whole. Okay? Consciousness has to contain reality as a whole. Again, these are physicists, very, uh, you know, the top of the top. Um, they had a problem. They knew that consciousness was at the root. That was fundamental. But they just didn't know what to do about it. They were stuck. All right, we know that. Now what? Well, here's a letter from Einstein to Bohm, written on October 28, 1954. One has to find a possibility to avoid the continuum together with space and time altogether. But I have not the slightest idea what kind of elementary concepts could be used in such a theory. See, they were just stuck. Now, coming from a different direction, quantum mechanics produced an even stranger view of reality. Okay, and uh, I'm going to run through why quantum mechanics came to be. 
Quantum mechanics existed because of this experiment. It's a very famous experiment, and uh, it's called the double slit experiment. For many years, um, scientists knew that if you put light through two slits in a barrier, that you would get this diffraction pattern. What would happen is some of the light would go through this slit, some of the light would go through this slit, and then the light would interfere with each other. The way it interfered is that the distance between here and that point and the distance between here and that point from the two slits had to be some integral number of wavelengths so that the wavelengths got there in phase. And when they did, you'd get some light. And when they didn't, when they got out of phase, you got nothing. You got dark spots in between them. Okay, so this was an experiment well-known, done many times, diffraction grading. And then Einstein came along and studied the um, thermoelectric um, light hitting uh, things and knocking out electrons, okay? Yeah, photoelectric effect. He, uh, he was studying that, and he realized that light looked like a particle. It seemed to always have some integer number of chunks of momentum. It came with little chunks of momentum, just like particles. So he said, light's a particle, and his theory supported that. Well, now that made a, a big question. Well, if light's a particle, particles we know. You know, they go through, through slits. They just travel in straight lines unless interacted on by an exterior force, right? Newton told us that. And they would put a little spot of light behind that slit and a little spot of light behind that spot. That's what a particle would do. So if light's particles, you know, how do we get this? So they decided, let's test this out. They were very clever, found a way to fire one photon at a time at these slits. So they fired a photon. Of course, one photon isn't enough to measure, particularly in those days. So they actually fired thousands, but they only fired them one at a time. So only one photon at a time interacted with these slits. And what do you think they got? Did they get this or this? Well, they got this. They got a diffraction pattern. Now, how was that? You were sending particles in these slits, and you got this diffraction pattern. Well, they didn't understand that very well. So uh, they said, well, let's look and see what's going on at those slits. So these little red things are symbolizing detectors. So they put photon detectors there and said, let's see what's happening at the slit. And when they did, sure enough, they occasionally, when the photon got fired, they'd find that it would go through this slit. And when it did, they'd get a little uh, thing from their detector. And uh, when it did, it goes straight through, just like Newton said, and stop right at the back behind the slit. And when one went through this slit, it would stop right there, and they got this pattern. So then it was thinking, well, it's the detectors are making the difference. When we detect it, we get this, and we don't detect it, we get this. So whether it was by, uh, by just luck or whether it's because they were clever, I don't know. But uh, fortunately, one of them decided to leave the detectors on, because if they turned off the detectors entirely, of course, they got this. And the idea was, well, the detectors are interfering. So somebody decided to leave the detectors on, but just not take any data. In other words, the detectors were there detecting, but they just weren't collecting any data. So if it was, let's say, going to a magnetic tape, then there was no magnetic tape loaded. Okay, the head of the tape was still showing what the detectors said. The head of the tape was still oscillating because the detectors were working. <clears throat> the detectors were still detecting. Well, what do you think happened? They got this. They got so they got the diffraction pattern. Okay? So what it turned out was that if they looked, if they collected the data, okay, then they get this. If they didn't collect the data and they weren't looking, they got this. That let them know that it was the actual conscious act of taking the data that made the difference as to whether light was a wave or light was a particle. Well, that was a really big deal. Okay? Suddenly, you know, life wasn't clear anymore. It had been real clear up to that time, and it wasn't clear. Okay, the, uh, the next one. 
Here's how that works. A bright young guy named Erwin Schrodinger, German, um, he was a graduate student. And if you'll notice in physics, most of the big breakthroughs occur with young people because they haven't uh, been in the system long enough to understand what's impossible. So they, uh, they're still open-minded. They can still think out of the box because they're, they're not, uh, they haven't gotten educated enough not to be able to do that. So what he said is, well, look, these things come through here one at a time. Um, the photon obviously can't break up into pieces. You know, a photon's a photon. So it must be going through here, and some of the time it goes up here, which was a, a smaller spot. Some of the time it goes, each one of those photons must somehow pick a place to go, but it always picks one of these spots and never picks the spaces in between. So, so what he would do is, he said, well, let's say that this photon's really not a photon at all. It's just probability distribution. Now, by that, I don't mean that the photon is somewhere and we just don't know where, and that's the probability of where it is. I mean that the photon doesn't exist as a particle. It's a probability distribution. So given that it's a probability distribution, some of the probability goes through that hole. Some of the probability goes through that hole. In other words, the probability is that some of it could go here. There's a certain amount of probability that goes here. The probability then interferes with itself like a wave, and you get this pattern. Well, when he did that with the math, of course, it worked, and he got the pattern. And the physicists of the day looked at it and shook their heads at graduate students. You know, I mean, okay, you got the answer, but it doesn't make any sense. Well, then they took his his methodology, and they applied it to other things at the day. And guess what? It got the right answers there, too. And it kept getting right answers. So physicists had to take it seriously, even though it didn't make any sense. Quantum mechanics now is one of the most successful branches of physics ever, and it still doesn't make any sense, you see? <laughs> to physicists, they still don't understand it, but you're going to understand it by the end of this day, you know? You will understand it, and you'll have that much up on, on physicists. So... Um, that's it. These particles are just probability distributions. Now, here's the way it was. Uh, uh, here's the way that uh, was described. At this point, do we have another one of those slides? Okay. At this point, um, they realized that it's because they took the measurement, right? Consciousness is involved. They said that the probability wave function collapses to a physical particle when the measurement is made. Okay? The measurement collapses the wave form to a physical particle. So because they made the measurement here, they got a physical particle there. And when you give a physical particle, just like Newton says, it travels in a straight line until it hits something. Here, the measurement was made here. So they didn't have a physical particle until the measurement was made. And when the measurement wave was made here, you got this diffraction pattern because up until this point, there was no particle. It was just probability, you see? So that was the, that was the answer. That's still the answer. Right. And now we're going to take a break as I give your brains a little time to cool down with the beautiful and haunting melody performed by the amazing musical magician Peter Phippen. This selection is most appropriately called Parallel Worlds. From his album Shadows of Dawn.
And now we will continue with Thomas Campbell in his keynote presentation at the 22nd Professional Seminar at the Monroe Institute. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of quotes from some of the... Uh, we go one, one more slide there. To people who uh, helped develop quantum mechanics. First is from Eugene Wigner. He was a Nobel Prize winner. He was one of the uh, uh, leading scientists that, that worked on the original quantum mechanics. He says, it will remain remarkable in whatever way our future concepts may develop that the very study of the external world led to the scientific conclusion that the content of the consciousness is the ultimate universal reality. Again, these are not New Agers, right? New Age hadn't happened yet. This is back in the early, tw in the early uh, 1900s, you know, 1950, 1920, 1925, that, that kind of time span. These are top-notch physicists. Max Planck, often known as the father of quantum mechanics, he didn't invent it, but he did a lot of work in it. And uh, science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature because in the last analysis, we ourselves are part of the mystery we're trying to solve. And that sounds just like Einstein. The last quote, it said, the space of physics is a function of our conceptual scheme. In other words, what's out here, our reality is entangled with what's in here. Okay. So um, the summary of that is, one, reality is a product of consciousness. Two, reality, mass, particles exist only as probability until a measurement is made. Two fundamental truths that we knew back in the early 1900s. Now, we don't even seem to know that now, right? Science would probably look to read those two things and say, nah, you know, that's not possible. Well, what happened? How come we kind of dumbed down over the last hundred years? Well, it's because, like in any field, when you hit the wall where you just can't take the next step, just like Einstein did, I have no idea, you know, what elementary concepts to use next. Well, you avoid it because that's a career breaker, not a career builder. You go work where you can make something happen, where you can, uh, you know, write papers and get funding. So this whole concept was just kind of walked away from because nobody knew what to do with it. It was a dead end, just like Einstein got dead-ended. Okay, now let's, let's bump up to, to the present time. Um, we're going to get contemporary now. Edward Fredkin. Uh, started in 1992, a digital physics movement. Edward Fredkin is still one of the, a major physicist, one of the uh, big guns, if you will, in, in physics still today. He's still a working scientist, uh, highly respected. He came to the conclusion from his science, and very well done science at that, he presented this at a, at a physics uh, uh, forum, that we must be living in a computer simulation, that our reality is digital, it's basically information, and we're computed. Okay? Now, it takes a brave man to stand up and say that in a physics colloquium in 1992, but he did, wasn't saying this because he, had it in, he saw it in a dream or he felt like it was a neat idea. He had science that led to that conclusion. Okay? That was a scientific fact in his mind. Well, of course, if you tell people that we're living in a, in a computer simulation, the first question is, where's the computer and who's programmed it? Well, he said his science didn't tell him anything about that. So he just called it other. He said the computer is in other, you know, quote, unquote. And that um, he had no idea where other was, but he did know that the rest of this was, was a fact, whether he knew about other or not. So then we have Nick Bostrom. He's now a head of a department at Oxford. Okay? So again, no, uh, no uh, a person of uh, light reputation. He worked in uh, Ivy League school here in the States. He has uh, advanced degrees in both uh, 
philosophy and in physics. And he wrote a paper called, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? And the, the bottom line is, he said, it's very probable that we are all living in a computer simulation. Okay, now the last guy, he's not a physicist. He's actually a mathematician. He works uh, at the Center for Discrete Mathematics and Theoretical com com uh, Computing. And uh, this had been around now, you see, for a decade. 92 had been around uh, for about a decade, and this came... Uh, uh, I guess about uh, 10 years later, and then uh, this came about 10 years after that, so we're, about, we're leaping decades here. And uh, this uh, digital physics caught on. There are digital physicists now all over the, all over the world. And, uh, digital physics is a solid branch of physics, still out on the fringe, but you know, breakthroughs only come from the fringe. Breakthroughs never come from the center. That's not the center's purpose. The center's purpose is stability and infrastructure not creative thinking. The creative thinking always comes out on a fringe. So um, in any case, Brian looked at this because uh, the digital physicist said reality is virtual. It's computed. And the fundamental theory of physics says it, reality is because it is. You know, it starts with the Big Bang, and the Big Bang has no cause. It's an a-causal thing. You know, there is no cause for the Big Bang. Physics just starts with a Big Bang without a cause. It happens. You have all this energy. It's very tightly packed. Then it expands, and it cools, and you get planets, coalesce, and suns, and so on. But there is no cause for a Big Bang. So you know, that's a mystical assumption, something without a cause. So physics is really the fundamental. Uh, traditional physics is really based upon a mystical assumption that something happens out of nothing which is the Big Bang. So our universe has kind of popped out of nothing. Well, Brian took these two ideas, the traditional physics that we just exist because we do and everything's here because it is, and the one that this is a computed virtual reality. He had this big matrix, and down one side was all the things we knew, all the facts. What did, what did we know by experiment? Okay, that's the data. Those are the data points. And then he took the virtual reality idea and said, how does that fit the data? How does that explain the data? And then he took the traditional physics, how does that fit the data? So he had this big matrix, and when he was done, the last paragraph in his paper said, physicists, wake up. This concept of a virtual reality fits the data a whole lot better than a traditional concept. It explains more with fewer problems. So that was uh, a paper just presented like a year and a half ago, and since then uh, Whitworth has, uh, has presented another paper that takes this idea on a little, a little further. So that's where we are uh, present day. Now, let's uh, leave physics for a bit and talk about uh, metaphysics and reality and, and see how all this ties together. Okay, reality is information. Now, that may be a little hard for you to swallow, but reality is information. But now, look at it this way. What is your reality? What's your reality right now? Well, it comes through your senses, right? It's just what you see, hear, feel, smell. That's your reality. If you didn't have any senses... What would your reality be? Nothing. You'd be a point of consciousness floating in a black void. That's all. Okay? So, what is this, this uh, reality? It's just data. That's all. Photons hit your eyes, get focused by the lens, go to the retina, and what happens at the retina? They turn into electrical pulses. Discrete electrical pulses, not continuous electrical pulses, discrete pulses. Those pulses go into your nervous system, and, and what do they turn into? They hit synapses, and, and neurons fire off in different directions. You get neurons and patterns of neurons. What are neurons? Discrete pieces of information. So what is your reality? It's data. It's little electrical blips. It's neurons and patterns of neurons. It's digital data. And when I say digital, I mean discrete. Digital is another word for discrete. It comes in packets. 
little separate units, neurons, little pulses. So that's what your reality is, nothing but data. Now, if, I, if all of your senses were somehow terminated and you were in that, that black void of point consciousness, and then I could stimulate your central nervous system just like it's being stimulated now. I could reproduce all those little electrical signals just at the right places on your, in your central nervous system. What would you experience? You'd experience just what you're experiencing now. And there'd be no way for you to tell the difference. No experiment that you could do that would differentiate one from the other. So now it's just a small step from there to say, well, what is our reality? It's just a data stream. It's a data stream coming down to consciousness, and we interpret that data as this reality. Because, in fact, that's what's happening here. We're getting the photons. We're getting the pressure waves on our ears. It turns into data, and our brain, we think it's our brain. It's not really our brain. It's our consciousness interprets that data to be this reality. This is just an interpretation of a lot of digital information. That's what this is. That's what all this reality is. Okay, so consciousness is the fundamental reality. The larger consciousness system is a digital information system. At the most fundamental level, consciousness is just information. Information at the most fundamental level is bits. I'm not going to, you know, we can get more complicated than, than bits and, and binary. We could go qubits and there's other things besides binary, but I'm just keeping it at the most basic level here for the, to get the concepts across. The most basic level information is bits, and the most basic level bits are binary. Okay? That's the most basic thing. So information is non-physical and subjective. Thus, consciousness is non-physical and subjective. And you're thinking, information is non-physical? Well, wait a minute. You know, this is the information age, and I have information overload. And, and why is it non-physical? It would be easy to get rid of if it were non-physical. But think about it. It is. Information is the meaning the content, the message. It's not the media. Okay, that's the paper in the book is the media. It's not the code symbols. That's the ink squiggles on the book. Those are the code symbols. Neither one of those are information. It's not until a consciousness looks at those code symbols on that paper that it extracts the information. Information requires consciousness. Now, you can put a book, you can put paper in a bottle. You can put um, ink in a bottle, but you can't put information in a bottle. The content, the meaning, is non-physical. That can't be weighed, has no weight, takes up no space. It's not physical. Okay, so information's non-physical. If consciousness is just an information field, then consciousness is non-physical. Okay, um, we've done that. <clears throat> okay, that takes us to uh, information in a digital system is represented by organized bits. So let's talk about organization. If you were a double E, you'd, you'd say this in terms of signal and noise. You have a signal, that's the information, and you have noise, and that's still energy, but it's random. It, there's no information in randomness. So if with, to get information, you, you have to not have randomness. You have to have order. Okay, now a measure of order, or perhaps I should say a measure of disorder, is called entropy. It's a measure of disorder. So if you have high entropy, you have a lot of disorder, you have randomness. If you have low entropy, you have a lot of order, a lot of coherency, okay? That's the, that's the difference. So um, uh, if you have an information system, this information system is, as it has information in it, it has to have order. As that information dissipates and no longer has information, you go to higher entropy, all right? Um, 
Entropy can be thought of in another way as well, and you'll see how the two are connected. If you have high entropy, you have very little ability to affect anything or do anything. If you have low entropy, you have a lot of ability to affect things. You have power. The physics term is it's, it's the ability to do work, but you have power. Now, imagine a, a bottle of gasoline. So you have a bottle of gasoline. Now, as a bottle of gasoline, the molecules in that gasoline, that'll be our system, they have a lot of ability to do things, right? They can change things. You can throw a match in there and suddenly everything in the vicinity has changed. You can pour it in your car and you can drive your car someplace. So that gasoline, because those, those molecules of gasoline are ordered, they're packed in a very small place. It's so dense it's a liquid. Okay, now we let that, that same gasoline evaporate. Now they've evaporated, entirely gone. We still have a system of gasoline, still same number of gasoline molecules exist in the universe. They're just spread all over the atmosphere. What can they do? Nothing. See, they've lost their power because they've lost their order. Now they're random and they lose power. So that's two, two ideas about entropy. It's a measure of disorder, and it also tells you it's a measure of power or ability to affect something. All right. Um, <clears throat> Self-changing systems with a purpose evolve to be more successful within their environments uh, by lowering their entropy. Evolution is a very fundamental concept. Technologies evolve. You know, uh, governments, mon monetary systems, everything evolves or de-evolves. You know, it goes both ways. But things change. Self-changing systems that can learn and that can change themselves evolve. And you can take that evolution and explain it in terms of entropy. You evolve when you're decreasing the entropy of your system. In other words, the system works better. It's more organized. It's more functional. And you're de-evolving as, as you dissipate that information, and it becomes more random. Okay? So even our own evolution can be, our biological evolution can be put in that term, in terms of entropy. Um, so consciousness is a self-aware, self-modifying system evolving toward lower entropy states. This concludes this show. Thank you for tuning in, and be sure to tune in to the second part next week along with the News from the Lab segment where I'm going to be sharing my communications with the other side. This is Marcus Leder, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.